Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Hoop Du Jour with me, Peter Vesey, presented by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. Welcome back to Hoop Du Jour, another installment. My uh, treasured guest today is Bob Dandridge. I call him the pick. I will not use the word, I will not use the nickname Greyhound. I, I, <laughs> that was his, but somehow Walter Davis then got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how the nicknames get passed around, you know, like the oh, kangaroo, kangaroo kid. No, that's like been used for four people. Okay. Anyway. We are here, and I'm and I'm so glad, Bob. To uh, and we we have phone conversations that I I wish I had uh, on tape because <laughs> they're so good. But we'll try we'll try to duplicate today. Uh, first first off, congratulations on last year uh, making making the Hall of Fame, being inducted. Uh, you're you're long overdue. We'll we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but I thought your speech was as wholesome a speech, and I don't mean Red Holtzman, I mean wholesome speech, <laughs> as I've ever heard. I'm wondering, uh, you know, when you became a part-time philosopher slash <laughs> preacher. <laughs> well, you know, life, life evolves and, and <laughs> go through a lot of changes. And you realize that we've all been blessed and and you acquire quite a few skills over 73 years. <laughs> yeah. All occasions. <laughs> so so that was a developed skill. Well, well, you know, ironically, uh Chris Weber really inspired that. Really? Yeah, because Chris was the first to <laughs> Um, you know, doing the induction, and I saw where he went different routes. He he said something about the spiritual aspect, and then he also talked about some black civil rights stuff or activism, and those issues are close to my heart. So that sort of freed me to just say, well. I know you've prepared a speech and it's on the teleprompter, but I remember a guy earlier told me to just stay, say what you feel. And when I, <laughs> it was really from the heart as compared to what was on the teleprompter. Well, you could certainly tell that. Your, your speech was the antithesis of my speech when I went in. <laughs> I went from the heart on. I went from the heart. Uh, but whatever, uh, you know, I'm proud of you. Though it was, it was a great speech. I, the thing that tickled me the most of all was when you you outed your wife for saying she wasn't going to cook for you when you got married. <laughs> and the face on her, she laughed. She cracked up. Uh, 
<laughs> Did she ever cook for you your whole marriage, or was it all takeout? <laughs> well, she, she cooks, but she lets me know that uh, not my mother. So she's not <laughs> for me eating, and 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 I'm still paying for that statement. Um, <laughs> I knew I zeroed in on something. I knew I got. <laughs> she laughed. You got nothing to worry about. She laughed. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob, I understand what you're saying about, you know, you evolve and, you know, you get to, you know, throw away. You said you don't hold grudges. Uh, unlike me, I hold grudges into the hereafter. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> how how are you cool with the weight? What what happened? Um, a lot of good things happened. I decided to uh, try to find my way, one, how to work myself back into uh, the loop. And when I say the loop, I mean the uh, NBA. And, uh, you know, once I left the league in 81 and came to the real work workforce, you know, that was a transition itself. And out of that transition, some good times and bad evolved uh, my desire to express with uh, veteran players um, things that go on during the transition. And out of that experience came what is now the uh, rookie transition experience. And uh, with the help of uh, Dr. Joe Carr down in Washington, D.C., and uh another organization uh we came up with with a good program and then i went from there to being with the players union where i got a lot of experience as director of player programs and all this these situations allowed me to i was giving back giving back a program or an industry that I truly love because basketball has always been my passion. And from there, you know, I, I, I had a nonprofit where I worked with kids and then I was able to get back to doing appearances with the Milwaukee Bucks on a regular basis, like eight or nine a year. Uh, I was executive director of what we call the Bullets Wizards Alumni Association, which allowed me to communicate and develop further develop my skills in terms of uh, communicating with with people i had to uh you know talk to owners in the league and um, by by 2012 or 2013 i think the epitome of everything was that i could call the nba be it co the commissioner be it the uh teams and get return calls from folks right and it was a period of development for me because you know oftentimes while i was playing uh one of my former colleagues told me say you were an, an angry player <laughs> yeah and yeah you know, it, it was a time where you know african americans especially athletes weren't ex expected to speak up for themselves and you know i was one of the guys that you know spoke up for themselves and i think i was one of the first guys who maybe took games off when you were injured 
And that was not looked upon very fondly at that particular time you were expected to play when you were injured. And, uh, you know, I would actually, you know, take off games or sit out games because of injuries. And I remember a guy, Wally Jones, back in the day, there was a movie uh, called They Shoot Horses, Don't They? <laughs> dancing. And, yeah, the dancing one. Yeah. And Wally used to say that all the time because and then. <laughs> they, Marathon dancing. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. That. Yeah. And so that sort of stuck with me to to, to the point that you know, you could get injected over and over and then eventually, you know, your ligaments were destroyed and things of that nature. And, you know, I, I remember things like that. And so, but the big transformation for me was to um, come back to the league as, um, and not afraid to let them see who Bob Danvich really was. I didn't have to put up a front. I didn't have to put up a front as this great athlete. I came back as a jovial guy, a, a fun-loving guy. And so that, for me, those 30-so-odd years gave me an opportunity to know more about me and right. to be to drop some of the defenses we as athletes put up. And individuals realized that, hey, you know, Danage is a pretty good guy. Right. And I remember you, Don, Nelson, Don, Don Nelson told me, he said, he said, one thing about you, Danage, nobody never said you were dumb or not intelligent. And so I realized that the way we show up in the beginning, that's the lasting impression that people have of you. So I began to show up as the real Bob Danridge, a um, jovial guy who loved the game of basketball and that. All those things took place over a period of 30 years, which really benefited me more than anybody else because it, it made me a better parent, it made me a better friend, it made me a better uh, sister, I mean a better brother, it made me a better husband. And it was really fun during those 30-some-odd years. So the, the, sense, the sense of belonging is what did it. The sense yeah. Of belonging. Yeah. You, you, were, you were not an easy interview, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> when I was covering you during the finals a couple of years, you had one of the great, the great one-liners of all time. And do you remember it about the bar of soap? No? The bar of soap. Should Nobody I should I say? It. Should I, I say? It? All right. Yeah, so so we're in the locker room during the finals, and uh, you you did not practice that day or something. You again, you were you were taking a practice off way before Iverson or Bill Russell thought about it, uh, and uh, and you said that yeah, you know the the the, the body is like a bar of soap. The more oh, you yeah. use it, the more it wears down. <laughs> I never forgot that. I said, okay, there's my lead for tomorrow. <laughs> but, See, and, and most folks forget that at I I was six six and I never played at any more than 190, 95 pounds. 
And especially in Milwaukee, I played the other small forward when we won the championship was Greg Smith. And Greg Smith was only about six four and a half, six five. And from time to time, you know, we playing playing against the Busher, we playing against Nelson, we playing against Gus Johnson, Paul Silas, Bill Bridges. So at that time, you know, we and I never weighed any more than 195 pounds. So it was always a bruising night because oftentimes I had to guard the power forward. Um, I'm going to get back into uh, taking games off and, and injuries and stuff later on when we, we discuss Larry Costello, who coached you with the Milwaukee Bucks and uh, who is going into the Hall of Fame this this induction and you will be a presenter. So you've got you finished with a great relationship with him, which I'm going to talk about later. And his daughter, Leslie, asked you to be one of the presenters, which is which is which is huge. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to backtrack. I, I want to start with with something that I hope you can relate to. Uh, but it just dawned on me while I was reading stuff about you that you're from Richmond, Virginia. You you went to to uh, what was your high school? Maggie Walker. Maggie Walker High School. And there was a guy who who graduated from the same high school five years before you named Arthur Ash. Was there any connection between the two of you? No connection. He was uh, legendary, you know, before me. We lived on opposite sides of the city. And, and, the, and nobody really paid attention that much to Arthur because his father was a truant officer. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So, Stay so, clear of him. <laughs> <laughs> Although I just in the days of school, you know, we were as concerned about his father even recognizing you <laughs> as we were in watching Arthur play tennis. And and we know Arthur's history about having to fight to play in some of the tournaments in Richmond and things of that nature. So um, one, one of my proudest moments was being in Madison Square Garden and uh, playing a game and the ball goes out of bound and it goes over towards Arthur where he was sitting uh, courtside and when I went to get the ball, he said, hey, homeboy. And I mean, you know, when, when a guy <laughs> like Arthur Ash reckoned, right. I, mean, I mean, it just blows you away. Right. So that right. was my Arthur Ash story and the proud one proud moment in my life. Did Did you ever speak to him one-on-one? -on -one? Did you ever get together? Oh, no, no, I never. You no. know, he was like bigger than life you know right right yeah you know if i had made that big effort to to get to him i'm quite sure i could but i i was sort of shy little skinny kid and when you got a guy like arthur ash you know how do you just walk up to him you know during that particular time but if he had caught me 
during that transition period, that 30 year wait, I would have easily have approached it. Right. Yeah, quick, quick. I have a, one author Ash story. Uh, our children, my daughter and his daughter, went to the same grammar school uh, in in Manhattan, and he, he his daughter was a year behind mine. So he, you know, parents would bring their kids. It was up on in the eighties, and the parents would bring their kids to school. They were young, and uh, I, I I said to to my wife, my ex wife now, I said, you know, what what is how come how come that he he comes to school with her every day, but he doesn't drive. His wife Jeannie, who was a photographer, who uh, who I knew from from years before, how come she's always driving? And then and then it hit that he had AIDS. It came out that he had AIDS. And uh, so one one day, you know, he would always say hi. He would always say hi. You know, how you doing? But never we never spoke. But so one day though, he came and he spoke to his child's class and i'm talking maybe third fourth grader or something like that and he spoke to the whole class just their class about aids mm-hmm. and i found that out later okay and, and so you know that that's my only thing with him you know we never really had a conversation he knew i was a sports writer so he knew it keep his distance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh yeah he, he probably would have been as t- easy an easier interview than you but you know <laughs> I, I can't Anyway, that that's my. I, I was just hoping that maybe you know maybe your paths had crossed a lot, you know, in Richmond. But, no, uh, was older and he lived on the opposite side of right, of right, town. right. Um, when when you went to so were you a star in high school? Just an average, an average player. And, and you know, average about 14, 15 points a game. Okay. Football was the big sport at my high school. Really? Basketball was secondary. So you played, did you play football? No, my gracious. No, no. no way. I, I, I was, uh, you know, guys, it was a guy, Willie Lanier, that played. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, all right. I was not going to go out there and practice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the basketball career. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering about that, Bob, because I, I was wondering, like, how, how does somebody who, who goes to, to college um, and, and becomes its star and, uh, you know, were you not recruited? How, how did you end up going to college where you did? Oh, I ended up at. You know, I was not highly recruited. Uh, you know, maybe about three or four schools were looking at me. Um, and what was the determining, one of the determined factors was I thought about going to Virginia State and I went there on a visit with my high school coach. And when the Virginia State high school, co- with the Virginia State basketball coach was talking to me, he uh, mentioned the word work steady. And, um, you know, that, that word sort of stuck with me because he, the, the word work, you know, just didn't resonate with me and an athletic scholarship. So on my way back to Richmond, which was about a 30 minute drive, I asked my high school coach, what did that mean, work steady? 
he means, well, you'll be on basketball scholarship, but you also have a job on, <laughs> on campus. Wow. So, yeah. so I eliminated Virginia State right away. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Bob, but Bob, maybe, maybe it was going to be the kind of job that Connie Hawkins had when he went to, you know, went, went to a school for a year. Where'd he go? Iowa, right? Iowa for one year. His job was to pick up the seaweed in the stadium. So, so maybe that, maybe that was going to be the kind of job you were going to have. No, 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 no. <laughs> coach from Norfolk State came to recruit me. One word I was listening for was work steady. <laughs> Doing his recruiting pitch. So I thought, uh, Maybe Norfolk State will be the right place for me to go. Then I had seen Norfolk State play a basketball game that year. They played Union University and Virginia Union University. All most of their players were out of New York City, out of Brooklyn, and so I chose Norfolk State. And um, there was a a high school official that had recommended me highly to Norfolk State, and so the coach said he was just taking a chance on me. (laughs) (laughs) Once I got to Norfolk State, fortunately for me, I had a coach, uh, a middle school coach who had played under the famous uh, McLendon. Yeah, uh, John McLendon, yeah. And I give this guy at middle school, whose name was Russell William, all the credit because he taught me the fundamentals of the game. You know, left hand, right hand, dribbling, layups, how to play defense, how to throw a bounce pass. And over the years, that gave gave me the advantage over most players that I came in contact with. And Mm -hmm. when I was in Milwaukee, uh, one of the things that Larry Costello said about me my rookie year said, this kid does not throw the ball away, and he knows how to throw a bounce pass into the pivot. To mm. com- so <laughs> I, I, I give uh, this guy all the credit for teaching me the fundamentals. That, that, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you about McClendon because he, he coached uh, Tennessee State three championships in a row. He had Dick Barnett. I was just wondering yeah. if, he had, if he had recruited you, if he was still coaching. But also I was wondering about uh, Winston-Salem, Gaines, you know, whether they, were, they had so many great players uh, before or, yeah, before you. I mean, they had uh, uh, who was Cleo Hill. Um, you know, yeah. Carl Green, Jack DeFaris, and then they had Earl Monroe. Yeah. But did they come after you at all? No, 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 no. Because uh, most of the times, you know, the the Division II, historically black schools, most of their recruiting was done based on referrals, um, Mm. simply because of the budgets and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if, if a guy went to Winston-Salem, he was probably recruited by a player that had played at Winston-Salem. If you right. went to Carolina A&T, you probably w- were there on referrals because I know at Norfolk State, we had a pipeline into Atlantic City. Hmm. And if 
City always had good quality basketball players. Um, into Richmond, Virginia, where I was from, uh, the coach always felt that if you brought a kid in from Richmond, uh, you know, he would be fundamentally sound. So most of the historically black schools recruited either by referrals or you were a local kid. And so <clears throat> that's why places like Winston-Salem didn't recruit me. And then <clears throat> I really wanted to go to North Carolina A&T, but when the coach saw me, I was about six four, about a hundred and sixty pounds. Right, and what? he he said that I was uh, too skinny to right. play North Carolina A and T. And then we played North Carolina A and T in the t tournament championship that went three overtimes. And after and and after that, he said. Mm, I need to get skinny kids now for the future. <laughs> <laughs> was was that's funny? Was that uh, Sam Jones School or was he North Carolina no, Central? No, he was that, Carolina Central. It was Al Adels School, North Carolina ENT. Sam. Oh, okay. North Carolina Central. Okay. University. But what about what about non-black schools? Did colleges no, know nothing? No. This was 1965, and schools were basically still segregated. And even though I was right there, the, and then the, the truth, I only averaged about 14 or 15. Right, okay. Game, and there was another guy across town, a guy named Charles Bonaparte. He might have been averaging about 22 or 23 as a high school player. So he basically drew all the attention in the city. Right, right, right. Um, so, Charlie uh, Scott became became yeah. the first black to to go to North Carolina. What was that? Sixty six? Was that sixty six? I'm not sure. A little little after yes. you. You were on the cusp. You were on the cusp. Yeah, um, I was on the cusp. Did you ever see then, did you ever see Pete Maravich play? He went to high school in Raleigh. Did you ever see him play? High school? No, no, I never saw him play and you know, except for on highlight films once we were <laughs> now, I'm talking high school. You know, I was in the army. I, I was stationed at Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, and uh, Earl Monroe was playing at Winston Salem, and Pete Maravich was playing in Raleigh at high school. He was a senior, and uh, so I would I watched them play. I was like, oh. I was ready. I was. I thought I could play, and then I went to see them play, and I said, "Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a, a career soldier." I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, so, so um, let's let's talk about your being drafted. So you come out. So you had a really good college career. I mean, you. I think you only lost maybe eight games in four years, or something like that. Yeah. And yes. Uh, but but still, you're only drafted fourth, fourth round, and 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 also the ABA came after you. And I wanted to. I'm, I'm an ABA guy, so I have to go there first. The Kentucky Colonels drafted you. Was there any interest in going to the Colonels? No, because you know I was the type of guy like I looked at the roster, and <laughs> most, that it was virtually the University of Kentucky's team. <laughs> so, and 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah. When they came initially to Norfolk State to talk to me about uh, joining the Kentucky Colonels, you know, we talked and talked, and finally I got around to telling telling the young man that. You know, I never dreamed about playing in the ABA, but I did dream about <laughs> it. <laughs> I said, if I don't make the ABA, NBA, I'll come back to the ABA. And he, he heatedly told me, well, it won't be the Kentucky Colonels that you'll be able to fall back on. Oh, he had copped an attitude, huh? Yeah, he got, a, he got an attitude, but... <laughs> So I never, I, I dream when I went to sleep at night, I, I, I dreamed about playing in the NBA. That's and funny, Bobby. That's funny. That, I, but, but if it was a year later, so you come out, what, 69, right? Yeah. So if it was a year later, you've got the Virginia Squires and, and they were loaded. They, they ended up, you know, they had. Charlie Scott and then Julia Serving and then George Gervin and on and on. So how about that? What if the Squires were around? I know you don't want to think about Bill, something that wasn't Bill, real. Bill would not have gone with the Squires. Like I said, I didn't dream about Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. And I could always come back to the Squires. <laughs> yeah, or a former would have had another player he could have sold somewhere else, you know. <laughs> well, and, they to me uh, when I was supposedly a free agent going from Milwaukee to Washington. I mean, a part of the deal was that uh, the Bullets paid uh, two hundred and twenty-five thousand for me to come for the uh bucks to release me to come to washington so it was a similar situation although it's supposed to have been free agency yeah right that conclusion did did come into play during that particular deal yeah there was always compensation somewhere you know and, and you know yeah. interestingly I, you probably don't know this but earl foreman who was the owner of the squires he was the co-owner of the bullets with with a poland before and, oh. and and they had a they had a split and then uh, that's how you know they they got a job they that's how they got a team in, in virginia which was a regional team and one of the cities they played in was richmond yeah yeah so you, you you would have been home you would have yeah. been home free uh so so okay so so you go to you go to the bucks you go to the nba that the league you've been dreaming about uh but you're a fourth round pick how does a fourth round pick Make make an NBA team. You came in at the same time as Lou Alcindor, aka Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Um, what did you have a sense of belonging there? Or did you have the confidence you could make it? What what happened when you showed up in Milwaukee? Ironically, the the, the comical part is the the, the flight was late getting in. So I, I get to rookie camp, which is a night session at Marquette University. So by the time I get on the court, I'm 45 minutes late. So Larry is sort of upset that I'm not there on time. And 
So the trainer had to remind Larry that Costello that I didn't fly the plane in. (laughs) (laughs) Just so happened that they were in the middle of the practice schedule and what was next on the agenda was one-on-one. Everybody was playing other players one-on-one and it just so happened that I was supposed to be playing one-on-one against the number two draft choice and he and I played the same position. That was the type of coach Larry was. He wanted to see right away. So the guy, Bob Greason was his name, number two pick out of Rutgers. Uh, he was leading me, and we were going to seven. He was leading me in the first game three to nothing, so he had to get four four more baskets to win. Well, I ended up winning the first game uh, seven to three. And Larry said, y'all play again. And so the second game, I beat him seven nothing. And so Larry ended that particular <laughs> show right away. But I had confidence in um, my ability to play because my freshman year at Norfolk State, I rode the bench the whole year. And so the summer between my freshman year and sophomore year, I traveled. Uh, through D.C., Philadelphia, and Atlantic City playing basketball against Mm -hmm. the guys in the North because Mm -hmm. they were supposed to be the better players. So I played against all the guys that played at the Matha High School in D.C. I would play on playgrounds where John Thompson was. Um, I would go to Atlantic City, play against some great players in Atlantic City. So that sophomore, going into my sophomore year, I played against some great competition. I played against a guy, Jerry Chambers, who was the number one draft choice of the Lakers that year. And great as a scorer, great scorer, yeah. He was a great scorer, and I played against him all summer and even played on the summer league team, but I played well against him. And I said, well, if I can play well against a number one draft choice, and I still got two more years left in college. Mm. Well, you know, I, I I played outside of the state of Virginia a lot during my college years. And so when I went to Milwaukee, I pretty much had a sense that, you know, again, I looked at the roster. It was a bunch of guys who had been picked in the expansion draft. So I said, well, these expansion guys here. So when I went to camp, I had a good sense of my ability to make the team because at Norfolk State, my senior year, I averaged 32 a game. And so I knew I could score. The Bucks knew I was scoring. But what surprised them was my ability to play defense. And I remember the first day in training, rookie training camp, there was a great guard there, Guy Rogers. And Guy Rogers took a liking to me because he didn't like to run at his older age, but Guy could still pass. And he just told me to get out on the break and run. And 
if I scored 10 points in, in practices, five of them were layups coming directly from Guy Rogers. And so I pretty much distinguished myself in rookie camp. And so I had a lot of confidence in my ability when I went to rookie camp in Milwaukee. And then again, I, I was one of the few guys, because of my fundamentals, that knew how to get the ball in, into Kareem. I knew if he held, held up his left hand, that was the hand he wanted the ball in. If the guy was behind him, I could hit him with a bounce pass. So my fundamentals uh, stood out in rookie camp when I went to Milwaukee. So so two things before I get back to Grecian. Did he make the team, by the way? Yes, he made the team. So he so he was on the championship team? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I heard he was a very good player, by the way. I never saw him play, but I heard he was he a was good a good player. he was a good shooter out of Rutgers. He was about six, seven, had good size, but you know, I had the speed advantage on him and and, and I was a stronger defensive player. Right. Well, I, I just want to flip flip the page back to a teammate that you had in college, Pee Wee Kirkland. Now, Pee Wee Pee Wee is acknowledged, you know, in Harlem, uh, in in Rucker lore as you know the be one of the best three players, you know, in the history of local players who never made the NBA. You know, along with Earl Manigault and Joe Hammond, and then there's Pee Wee. What was what was it? What was Pee Wee like in college? He he was your point guard for one year or two? One year. One year. Pee Tell me Wee about that. Just a tremendous teammate. I mean, Pee Wee was in better shape than the other 12 players that we had on the team. And see, when we first went, checked into Norfolk State uh, for the fall semester, we ran four miles a day every day before practice until the start of the first game. Six days a week, we ran four miles. And if we ran four miles, 80 days, Pee Wee came in first 78 times. Really? <laughs> I mean, just yeah. a tremendous athlete and... Of course, when he came there, there were some questions about him, but um, he did everything that our coach asked him to do. I mean, he was he came in, he was on the second team, he didn't start right away. And I mean, he ran the drills, he just did everything that was expected of him and whatever his lifestyle had been before, he just kicked that to the curb because of his passion for basketball. And he wanted to play at Norfolk State. And I, I say that he probably would have been the sixth man that year if our regular starting guard had not broke his arm. Did, did Pee Wee break his arm? No, Pee Wee didn't break. <laughs> but there was I know Pee Wee. I know. <laughs> oh, he's going to break my arm now. <laughs> guy, maybe two weeks before the season started, broke his arm. 
and there was no question who was going to be the starting guard. And what was his name? Do you remember? Uh, Tommy Long. Tommy Long was his name, and he hmm. played army ball with Shashevsky. He and Shashevsky uh, were in the same backcourt on an all-army team. And uh, he was, Tommy Long was out of Durham, North Carolina, and went to a place called Hillside High School. And also John Lucas went to Hillside High School. Okay. And so whenever I see John, I say, John, you know you're not the best point guard. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you do. I bet you (laughs) do. Did he ever hear of the guy? Did he ever hear of him? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Okay. He was John's hero. Oh, okay. He was about three years ahead, and they won a um, state championship was when Tommy Long was – and Tommy Long averaged 30 points a game in high school. And John came behind him, but John never won a state championship. So I remind John each time I see him that you're not the best point guard ever come out of high school. But either way, we ran the fast break to perfection for us because I said we averaged 100 points a game every year. And Pete sacrificed much of his New York City games to play within the structure of our team. Uh, Pee Wee probably could have averaged 28, 29 a game, but I think he probably averaged about 14, 15 points a game, maybe about 10 assists that year that he played with us. And and my Pee Wee Kirkman story is that we're playing in the, in the CIAA Conference Championship, and uh, the game goes to triple overtime. And I fouled out midway of the second overtime, and I said, Dan Rich, if y'all win this game, you the MVP of the tournament. Well, Pee Wee, in about an eight- or nine-minute period, snatched that away from me. Because in the third overtime, uh, the head coach was saying, well, look, Pee Wee, we need to stay within the structure, blah, blah, blah. And the assistant coach tells our head coach, look, we got nothing to lose. We need to let Pee Wee just be Pee Wee. And Pee Wee reverted back to his Rucker play in terms of we cleared it out for Pee Wee and Pee Wee just took everybody one-on-one, had a couple of three-pointers, and probably Pee Wee scored about 14 points in an eight-minute period uh, to win the championship for us. And I think the big thing that I love about Pee Wee is he sacrificed his game for the good of the team. And even when I was in the NBA, I would, you know, Pee Wee and I have always had a good mutual respect for each other um, because whatever his street life was, he never, he never brought that to Norfolk State's campus or to our team. And he spoke at our coach's funeral. And the thing that he said was the one thing he had gotten 
from coming to Norfolk State was a faith in God. And I mean, that within itself just sums up my respect for Pee Wee. Was he good enough to make the NBA? I know. Oh, of, course, of course he was. Right. Of course right. he was. Right, but as you say, you know, he he had a he had a, a life outside. He had a street life that that you know put him into prison for a while, uh, federal prison. Um, my team in the Rucker played against him. You know, when I had Julius Irving and Charlie Scott, we played against his team in the Rucker with Joe Hammond. What probably the best the best game in Rucker history, but went uh -huh. into overtime. But Charlie Scott won the game in overtime. Uh, and at any rate. You know, I, I, I've known him very well over the years, so I've always been interested to know your perspective on him. And there it is. And there it is. So so let's get back to the Bucks. Let's get back to the Bucks. You, you go to a team that's got Oscar Robertson at, at the end of his career, but an expansion team, as you mentioned, the year before. And, and you've got Lou Alcindor, Kareem. What what was it like for a guy you know that played played in a, basically a small school in the South to, to be accepted, fit in? What how did that work? Well, Oscar came my second year. Okay. So I at at the conclusion of my first year, I had established myself as this kid could be good simply because uh, I played I played good defense um, and I was able to blend in with the system that Larry Costello had and and actually Oscar had came his second year because Oscar could identify um, good players and even when I was a rookie, when nobody else on Milwaukee could guard the big O, I was often shifted to guard the big O when he was in Cincinnati. So he knew something about me. Uh, to play with Oscar and Kareem was a challenge because I had to find my niche to be significant to the team. And fortunately, you know, I, I could run the court on the fast break. I could pick up steals and I could shoot the mid-range jumper. And, and Oscar identified my ability to play and my knowledge of the game. So he, he had confidence in me. So mm -hmm. did he. And uh, Larry Costello, um, I had a lot of respect for, I have a lot of respect for Larry because, I mean, he could have easily have cut me being a, a fourth round draft choice from a division two school. And you had nobody, no guarantees, right? You, you yeah, had no, no guarantees. No. I'm now on a one year contract, which Wayne Embry regretted for three years because he kept giving me one, one year contracts, but I kept getting better and better. So finally he got wild. <laughs> third year stopped giving me one year contract. But again, you know, I could and very seldom, I could play. I mean, you know, I guarded Clyde Frazier when he gave us trouble. I I guard Earl Monroe. So, you know, after my 
when Oscar came there, I was pretty much that solidified me as a good player in this league. And and so Kareem them they just knew I could play. Right. Right. And I knew it when I went there. Uh, you know, looking at other players in the league, I said, I can play as good as this guy. And then I was probably that 1969 draft must have had about 12 or 13 small forwards there that was drafted ahead of me. And I played longer than any of the other uh, small forwards that were drafted ahead of me. And I think out of that class of 69, there are three of us that are Hall of Famers, myself, JoJo White, and Kareem. So uh, I'm, uh, I I'm, willing, I'm willing to bet right now all the money that both of us owe that you can name every one of those small forwards that was drafted ahead of you. Just like, just like you're able to tell me the score of playing Greach in the two <laughs> games. You know the score, how the game went. It, it's pretty, I mean, athletes are like that, but that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So start I mean, naming, start naming those small forwards, Bob. Uh, there were there were the Ogden, some guy Bud Ogden. Nash, Ogden Nash, but Bud Ogden, okay. Uh, Simeon Hill, Simeon Hill, yeah. Uh, Bingo Smith, Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> and you held that you held that grudge your whole career. You, were like, I mean that. That was a motivation for me. Sure. I mean, and and guys say, well, you were an angry player. You didn't say too much. I didn't have no conversation. I mean, right. fighting for my life. Uh, that was Willie Norwood that was drafted. Ahead right. Of me. Uh, right. There were quite a few guys. Yeah, but... you'll get them all before we're finished. Then. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they 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 gradually come come back to me. The guy who's the guy out of St. John's that played with the Knicks, uh, Big uh, Reed. Uh, he was the uh, head. Mel Davis. Mel Davis. Davis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> that's okay. That's good. That's good. You're doing good so far. Yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> So, so um, all right. We understand. You know, you could play. You could play off guards defensively. You could. There was. You could play small forwards and power forwards. But there was no. There was no all defensive team for a while, right? I don't think in the in the beginning they didn't start that till later. But yeah. You you. It still was difficult. I know you made s- several All Star games teams, but. I, I really like zero in on when your number was retired by the Bucks. Uh, Kareem sent a video tribute to you, and he he said something that you took exception to, and I totally I totally get it. Do you remember what he said? No. He said that you know he called you a role player. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and like no, you said I wasn't a role player. I mean. But- Again, if you're major, you know, the main guy on your team 
doesn't see you as more than a role player. How is the media going to get it right? I, I under I under acknowledged you for years. I, I, I will admit that readily. And so, yeah. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about what you said, said about that. Well, you know, he, I was offended <clears throat> uh, when he called me a role player because I'm looking, well, are you saying that Jamal Wilkes and Worthy were more of an asset to your game than I was? But then he came back, and when it came time for the Hall of Fame and he did another video, he talked about long overdue. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I yeah. got five his, his acknowledgement was long overdue. <laughs> hey, your acknowledgement was long overdue. But oh, it, man. You know, well, everybody knows the big fella. Yes. And, uh, yes. I've always respected him as a as an intellect and as a basketball player and I still say that he's the greatest that's ever played the game so you can't break up my uh, respect for Kareem and no I wouldn't dare try I know that <laughs> he respects my game right. to the point that we were we were great teammates we were we, we were great teammates, you know. But not not great friends. I don't think you you were hanging out with him. Lucius Allen was hanging out with him, but I, don't. I wasn't hanging out with him. But we had a great respect for each other, right? Um, as 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 men and as players, you know, because I've seen guys not want to come out the second half and face that sky hook. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, as long as long as we're on disrespect level here, you you again you you, you know you we can name numerous Hall of Famers that you had to guard over, over your life uh, over your life. What you thirteen years? Yeah. Um. You know, starting with Elgin Baylor and and Elvin Hayes and and Julius. Irving and Hondo and Billy Cunningham and um, who else am I thinking? Uh, Rick Barry, Connie yeah. Hawkins. Okay, all, all those guys that you had to guard, right? Yeah. And then you read about or you 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 see it on television of a guy like J.J. Redick saying that <laughs> the guys back in those days were plumbers and firemen, like. <laughs> Like what goes through your mind when you when you read some nonsense like that? You know, he's he's guy's just not a student of the game. You know, that's what I look at, and as a guy who's who's a shooter, you know, shooters live in a tunnel. <laughs> you know, and that's not only J.J. John McLaughlin. You know, shooters live in a tunnel, and they are just focused on shooting. Right, right. Uh, so I'm quite sure that you, you know J.J. 
Jess may not have seen any video of <laughs> guys that played back in the day who yeah. set the foundation for, for this. Because back in the day, you couldn't just be a, a shooter. There was only a few in the league. But uh, J.J. will be okay. I'm quite sure he's <laughs> caught enough. You think so? Rhetoric behind that. The next time he's asked that same question, I'm I'm quite sure. And you and JJ is from Virginia, so I'm quite sure it was just an honest mistake on his part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he he was he was in that tunnel. He was in that, was in that wind tunnel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I even left that guy. I don't want to. I don't want to slight anybody, but you also had to guard Bradley. I'm sure Bill Bradley and Jack Marin and you know. Oh yes. So many great small forwards back then. Who was who was the toughest? I it's hard. I you know I'm making it impossible. Who was the toughest for you to guard, and and why? Let me give you. Let me let me put this in the in a good perspective because I don't want the brothers to get mad at me. I'm a, <laughs> Rick Barry, Havlicek, and probably Bob Love those three and without a doubt rick barrett being the toughest wow and i'm saying because rick played with an attitude right he played with an attitude but he could just flat out play and i put rick barrett ahead of larry bird when they i mean because they played the same type of game except for Rick was a little, you know, Rick came out each night and he wanted to give in and everybody at least 30, 35 points a game. And then Rick Rick would fight you if he had to. Right. And I right. just, Barry's at the top of my list. Well, I, 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 you know, it's great you said that. I, I've said it for quite a while now that he could do everything. And Larry Bird's my favorite player of all time. Uh -huh. but I covered Rick, covered Rick with the Nets, covered him in the NBA. Uh, but I've always said that he, he can do everything that Larry Bird can do. Everything. And yeah. he, he, of course, being Rick Barry, took it another step further. He says, no, no, I'm, I'm better than him because he couldn't guard me. Larry couldn't have guarded me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you talk about fighting. I mean, Rick Barry holds the record, I believe, the unchallenged record of professional basketball of never winning a fight. Oh my gracious! <laughs> I don't think he ever won a fight. But he fought, you know. He fought. oh oh yeah. I yeah. mean, he fought some folks that nobody else ever thought about fighting. <laughs> He fought. He fought fans in the stands. He was way ahead of our test. I mean, he, I saw him. I saw him in Piscataway, New Jersey, when he was with Houston at the end of his career. A fan said something to him or threw something at him. I never was sure. As they were leaving to go to the locker room, he chased that fan up up the stands all the way to the top. Thank God that fan got away. You know. So, he was going to kill him. <laughs> and then he came back and, and then he had to and then he had to apologize to the old people who he had knocked over. I have a picture. I have a picture that was in The New York Times of him apologizing to a lady who, who was sitting down and, you know, and, and, and I'm standing there. My pictures in The Times 
Um, anyway, I'm glad I'm glad you gave him that kind of uh, respect. So we finished with with Rick Barry, um, who, by the way, was my previous podcast guest. Okay. So so that's good. We get this back to back. Um, and tell tell me about what made Havelcheck so difficult and Bob Love, which I'm sure many people will be surprised to hear. It, you know, Havlicek set the the standard by which I played. Um, by playing against Havlicek for a couple of years, you you know he John had a lot of just tricks. His ability to to hold you, the ability to to push you. The ability to foul you and <laughs> and the officials would not recognize it and his opponent getting charged for a foul or offense that he initiated he was real smart and he he just was a consistent player he could only dribble to his right. I don't even know if John had a left hand. Right. But he found a way to still get around you. He was a smart guy. And the thing that impressed me the most, I we played Boston a game in the playoffs one year. And after the game, I went back to the hotel and I was just totally exhausted from playing against him and that perpetual movement that he had. And he just played consistently all the time. And and I tried to play like he played in terms of mental approach, his mental toughness. And really he set the standard by which I wanted to be a pro. And so, Havlicek was the guy that I tried to emulate, um, not as far as scoring, but playing the total game. And so he 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 was the primary influence on me um, in the league. Did he did he have an attitude like Rick? Did he talk trash to you? Nothing. No, he his his game spoke for him. Right. And um, I don't even know if we ever really spoke to each other. <laughs> I mean, but that's the way you competed. I mean, you just didn't have uh, any conversation for a guy that you're trying to beat. And um, then Larry Costello was the type of coach, too, that he find find you if you talk to an opponent player. Really? Oh yes. Oh, what yes. kind of fine? What uh, was it? Ten dollars back in those days? Five thousand dollars. What? For talking. For talking. Well, shut my mouth. Yeah, I mean, you could have gone to college with a guy. Y'all could have been roommates, but you wouldn't say anything during during the course of a game to him. Oh my goodness, that that's amazing. I mean. <laughs> You know, Larry was like, you know, with his hair cut, uh, you, you know, it was almost like a military guy. 
Yeah. He he he. But he had a passion for the game. No, we're um, gonna do Larry. We're gonna do Larry in a second. I stay 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 on Hondo and give me something on on. Uh, first of all, Hondo, twenty six thousand plus points, right? Yeah. Um, Hall of Fame, of course. You know, championships, of course. He's the he's one of the most unrecognized guys. They get no respect from the younger crew. They have no idea who Havlicek is. You know, it's like it's like Elgin. You know who? Elgin who? What? You know, it's like. Or or Lenny Lenny who yeah. Lenny Wilkins who? Lenny Wilkins who had no right he couldn't he had no right hand so he could go left anytime he wanted yeah Gary Payton asked the reporter at the All Star game did Lenny Wilkins ever play <laughs> <laughs> what did oh, Lenny my. ever play was he a good player oh my goodness or did he just coach. <laughs> I I I played him one on one when he was the coach of the Sonics during their during their runner up year. We played one on one, and uh, I I couldn't stop him. I don't. I just don't get it. I just couldn't stop. Him. <laughs> how How about Butter being loved? What do you got on him? He was my biggest competitor my first couple of years because he played in Chicago. And Chicago was always battling Milwaukee for that first place in that division. Uh, you know, Butter was a good defensive player, had long arms. And the only year we were really able to do anything with Butter B was when we had Bob Boozer. Because Boozer was 6'9 and had long arms, but... Uh, Butterbean was just a tough guy to guard, but the main thing was he was a great defensive player, which he probably never got credit for. You know, they always thought about him as a score. They gave the defensive credit to on Chicago to Van Leer and uh, Sloan. Sloan. And Sloan, yeah. But what about Chet Walker? I'm surprised that you wouldn't you didn't have to guard him. I mean, I guarded. I guarded Chet, but Chet was not as tough a guard, a tougher guy to defend than Butterbean. You know, Chet was basically smooth and, you know, he was no taller than I was. So, so Chet, and, and then I most of the time made Chet have to play defense. <laughs> oh, oh, so that was, that sort of off right. offense that Chet Walker had. Right, the nerve, the nerve of you, Bobby, to make him play defense. Yeah, oh, that sometimes your <laughs> offense is your best defense. <laughs> no, no question. Take the sap them of the energy. Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm still thinking about what Kareem, what Kareem said about you initially being a role player. Did he understand that? I tell me if I'm wrong, but in seventy seventy one, well, first of all. You were the leading scorer in the finals during the 70s. You were in the finals four times, and you were the all-time leading scorer of the decade. <laughs> For a role player, that's not bad. That's even more than he scored. But but I think in 71, when you won it, did, did you not lead the team with or score 20 a game? Was that 71? Yeah, I, I averaged 20 a game during the playoffs. I mean, what? <laughs> what was he thinking? What was he smoking? He, <laughs> he, he just, he, he, he just, I guess he was trying not to 
discredit or give some some credibility <laughs> to the guys to the forwards he played with in L.A. You know, maybe he forgot uh, to be in Milwaukee. Yeah, I'd like but I'd like to see a retraction. I, I want I want an official retraction. You know, uh, I was just wondering also. So I go, I, I I definitely jump around a little, Bob. But I I was also wondering during you know that speech that you get the Hall of Fame speech. Do you have any when you thought went home and thought about it? Do you have any retractions that you'd like to make off of that speech, <laughs> or or did it, did you forget anybody that you should have remembered that said uh, something? Hey, uh, forgot me. <laughs> not really. I mean, I think okay. the speech. Uh, <laughs> Spoke volumes for right. the. For the I'm time. just being a wise ass, Bob. Just being. Yeah, a wise. I, I know. I I, th- I know the speech spoke volumes. It, <laughs> it spoke to a lot of people, and um, you know, it gave me an opportunity to say some things that that I wanted to say and to be me and where I am today in my life. Right. I'm. I'm still. You know, this is a catharsis for me doing these interviews because it brings out stuff that, so I, I pushed Jamal Wilkes for the hall of fame. You have no idea to, to, you know, through the Lakers, through the, through the hall of fame. I mean, I was like his biggest supporter and then he got, got into the hall of fame. He never mentioned my name once. So oh. I was like, okay, okay, Jamal, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forget, I forget nothing. Everybody pushed all these small forwards ahead of me, and I'm the one that they could pattern their game, their games after. Bob, I I absolutely admit that I did that. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't push you the way I should have. And uh, you know, I was in a position to be able to do it, and not not until uh, probably when I retired, I got to got to realize. Oh, wait a minute. But there are other guys, you know, there's still other guys that, that they just get no, no, uh, you know, another small forward. Mark Aguirre, do you ever see his name mentioned as a possibility? Gus Williams. I mean, there, there's so many. Dick Barnett. Come on. You know, you should be used to me by now after all these years ranting and raving. <laughs> so you, you really, if you weren't with one of the New York teams, <laughs> credit from you you know i i'm based in new york but i covered the league i covered the league which is yeah. you know that your your uh 74 championship was the first nba championship i covered from start to finish and um so that's that's always going to stick out in my mind i, I believe i can even say that the, the series ended May twelfth on Mother's Day. Games, game seven. What What do you remember about Game Seven, losing to the Celtics at home? I remember uh, the officials just letting Dave Cowers beat Raymond Brown. I mean, <laughs> who were they? Let's name them. Uh who was the who who was the most outstanding one? What's his name? Uh, what's the guy's the top official in the league doing yeah. that? Yeah, I won't be able to remember. But uh, I, I was mean, there, was there, was it Powers? Was it Strom? Was it Strom, not Strom? Uh, 
that had the curly hair. He was considered the number one official in the league during that time. Yeah. I can't think. Of I can't either. But so, so all right. I, I was always taught that when in doubt, blame the officials. So we'll, we'll start with that. We'll go. I mean, it was like, you, you know, Kareem had the height on, on the Cowans and, most opponents Kareem had the height on, but but Cowens was allowed to, as we say, rock put a saddle on Kareem and ride him that dog on seventh game. And and, and that's a pretty pretty good consensus. But then I think we I don't think McLaughlin played that series. Um well Lucius Allen didn't, correct? Allen didn't play. And, and you had to play the backcourt. I remember you bringing up the ball sometimes. Yeah, and we had Mickey Davis. Right. Mickey, Mickey Davis. Duquesne came in and played, but it was a, it was a tough fourth series. And, and, you know, during that time, Boston full court pressed you the whole game. You know, and they had Don Chaney Garden, Garden, Oscar, full court. Right. By that time, I think Oscar was into about his last season. I think that was his last. I think he's thirty-five at so at the time. Yeah. And to have Don Chaney full, you know, full court pressing you for seven games is a tough task. Right. That's of anybody. Which, which is why Costello had you bring up the ball, take the pressure yeah. off of him. Correct. Yeah, but then. That won't know better because I got Hamlet check. Well, that game, that game was quite an upset. I mean, coming off of Kareem hitting hitting the the uh, the hook shot from the corner over Henry Finkel to to yeah. win win game six in Boston, and then you come back and. You know, felt felt for sure you guys were, were going to win it in Game Seven, yeah. and, and and you got beat pretty bad. Yeah, and you know, things games like that are painful. You, you know, painful that you know you got to live through that all summer. You were there. The I think Oscar retired after that year, and I don't think he wanted to. I think he was kind of forced out. They weren't going to give him a new contract. Yeah. And then Kareem asked out what the year after that, correct? Yeah. Yes. And then and then so you get you know you get a bunch of young guys you know Bridgman and Winters and Myers and uh, Elmore Smith was part of that deal. Yeah. And what happened to your career at that point? Where where were you at? Uh, put in a leadership um, position. Uh, I was team captain. Um, with a bunch of young guys, which uh, really clearly projected me as the go-to guy and, and the leader of the team. And the leadership thing was more of having to perform at a high level, um, not only scoring, but um, 
it was it was a good experience because it gave me an opportunity to uh, practice the leadership skills that I had learned from playing with the Big O. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I was never a guy that that's ambition was to play. You know, the average twenty five, but twenty twenty one was uh, was the range that I wanted to be in. But it was a great experience playing with these young guys to see them develop, especially uh, Bridgman. Uh, had an opportunity to play with Dave Myers, Quinn Buckner, Ken Benson um, came in there a year later, and Brian Winters. That was, uh, and, and Elmore Smith. And I got an opportunity to see uh, the greatness of, of Elmore Smith. I got a chance to play with Brian Winters, who I say is the best shooter I ever played with during my 13-year career. Tell me what happened at the end of your Bucks uh, tour. Uh, why? Why did you move on? Um, was it was it a negative thing at the end? Was was Costello still the coach when you moved on? I can't remember. No, Costello was not the coach. Don Nelson had taken over for uh, Larry. And and my last year in Milwaukee, it was basically a young team. And uh, Don Nelson, at, at some point, made it clear that, you know, they were going to move on to a younger group. And, and I had requested to be traded too, because I, I just didn't want to end my career um, with a developing team. And right. I was, I had the opportunity to be a free agent. Uh, some teams that I was, that were interested in me was Houston, um, Golden State, New York expressed a little interest, but I wasn't too interested in going to New York to be under that new york media yeah i don't blame you (laughs) and so washington (laughs) entered the picture and washington was the perfect place for me because it was near home and so when i got an opportunity to become a free agent and go to washington it was just a great opportunity for me so so all your experience your you know your positive experience in milwaukee and your leadership role at the end enhanced your 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 image your productivity with washington which immediately became a title contender it it surely did all of my experiences in milwaukee prepared me to go to uh to washington and uh you know when i went there when i decided to go it was i wasn't um expecting to encounter the championship expectations that Washington had. You know, I thought I was just going to go there, play, be on a good team. If we got to the championship, that was going to be good. But uh, Washington specifically wanted me because they felt that I could um, at least balance or, or, or be their counter to Julius up in the seven, up with the 76ers because they knew that they couldn't get to the championship 
without uh, being able to have uh, Julia somewhat contained. And, and I had played well throughout my career against the doctor. So that was the reason that, that um, Washington wanted me there. So you're joining Wes Unseld, Elvin Hayes, you know, two, two Hall of Fame guys. Uh, again, something that escaped me while I was covering those teams. I mean, I covered your teams extensively. I covered the <laughs> Seattle series twice. Uh. You know, um, and I covered you against the Spurs when you beat them in that first, you know, when you were down 3-1, then you beat them to get into the finals. Um, but it's, what escaped me was the, how, how good you were. I, I never I never understood that when they needed a big shot, they would go to you, not Elvin Hayes. I used to, I had a nickname for him. I used to call him the silent E because oh. because in the fourth quarter <laughs> he, he, he disappeared. But am I am I correct now? I mean they would go to you. Yes, yes. I I became the the go to guy in uh, clutch situations and going to Washington, I considered it my team. Once I got there and I developed a relationship with Dick Marta, he pretty well said that we gonna go as far as your performance, Dandridge. And he gave me the green light and that green light was to play the way that I wanted to provide the leadership that they needed. And it didn't necessarily translate to me into being the top score. Right. I was able to um, play with Wes and Elvin and not rock the boat with either. I mean, they didn't see me coming in as a guy who's trying to take over the team, be the star. I what I added to that was was leadership and a willingness to distribute the ball wherever it had to be distributed. Although I wasn't the point guard at the three position during that time, you you did everything that was required to win, and um, I gained a lot of respect from Elvin and Wes and Mata because I, I played all aspects of the game and my ability to score down the clutch, to, to score the basket, to make the right pass, all that was drawing off the experiences of playing with the big O and Kareem in, in Milwaukee. So, you know, if I had not really played with those two and seen exactly how leadership works, especially from Oscar, um, knowing when to take the good shot, when to take the good pass, when to have everybody involved so everybody feels that he is a part of this winning uh, situation. So Washington really gave me the opportunity to show the type of player and leader I could be. So I'm, I'm ever appreciative to Washington because my game came out of the shadows. Right. Right. But not, but not enough, not enough that again, game, you, you beat the Sonics in 70 in 78. 
uh, seven-game series, and Wes Unseld is named the MVP. So I had a vote. There were five votes. There were five votes. Five. Three to two, Unseld wins. I voted for Unseld. You should have been the MVP. (laughs) So now, did you you ever remind Unseld that that was your trophy? Yeah, I did. I, we we were roasting Wes probably about 10 years ago, and I, I wondered why I was the last guy to roast him, but I had to let him know that that MVP trophy on his mantle really belonged to me. And everybody, a thousand people were hush-mouthed. <laughs> Said this, but he nodded his head in improve in in agreement. And in fact, after the the game was over, they announced that I had won the MVP, and then they came back and changed it. I didn't know that they they changed it, and that tells the story of my career. <laughs> that that stuff. So Wes, great guy. I love him. But that that's where the politics, I think, of the game. No, has- I think I, I don't think politics, Bob. I think we just don't know. We just were stupid. We didn't But we, if, if weren't we, you the leading scorer in the in in the that year, weren't you in the playoffs, the finals? Were you the leading scorer? Yeah. <laughs> and and it wasn't politics; it was stupidity. <laughs> I, but you can't be. I mean, like you said, you watch the whole playoffs. Yeah. I mean, you see me scoring the crucial point, yeah. guarding the best players, <laughs> and then you turn around <laughs> and give it to a guy, and I'm saying. <laughs> Great player, great person, but you know, like you said, you you uh, voted. Oh, come on, Peter! You, <laughs> I mean, and you're still willing to do this podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we all make mistakes, and I know that. You know, I played with a chip on my shoulder, but that worked to to my advantage in terms of competing against other other guys but for the same reason you made that vote i mean i mean what was the reason you you voted that way i I wish i could remember all i knew is i was not going to vote for elvin (laughs) well but but then for for a squad who had choked had choked over the last eight years in the playoffs and here comes this guy dandridge who's leading them in scoring (laughs) how could you ever think of anything else well if my editor was smart he would have taken the column away from me you know it's like i I obviously didn't get it and and look i could lie to you and say yeah i voted for you but i but i didn't and no one else did either it was a five vote three to two unsell to hayes all right 
Uh, enough, of, enough of enough of uh, flogging let me, me. Let me say this. Let me, let me say this. <laughs> how, and, how, and I say it was almost political because originally they said Bob Dandridge. Never heard and, that, Bob. And then they come back and say, well, wait a minute. There's been a recount. Yeah. So what I'm thinking is, Mr. Poland got involved in this nah. and got the vote changed. Bob, it was so quick. It was so quick. No, no nobody got involved. I, look, okay. Brian McIntyre was was in charge of the uh, of the PR of the NBA. Then he gave me the vote quickly. It was done quickly, right at courtside. Right at courtside. Okay. Okay. Boom, done. So, okay, you bring up Abe Poland. He was the owner. So you get to the finals twice. You win the first time. You lose to Seattle in the second. The second time, um, and then and then you move on again. You move on back to the Bucks. What what happened there between you yeah. and Abe Poland? What happened between you two? Well, what happened was my third year, I injured my knee, and they could not find out exactly what was wrong um i traveled to about three or four different doctors went to new york went to oklahoma and nobody could really find out exactly what was causing the pain and so i missed about 40 games that year yeah um the bullets decided not to pick up my option and so that was virtually the end of my career. That was virtually the end of my career. And the whole summer went by and uh, probably the 1st of September, I get a call from Milwaukee. Don Nelson says, well, do you have one more year in you? And I said, yeah. And right. so, um, I went went out that morning and ran a couple of laps around the track, came back home, packed my stuff, went to Milwaukee. And Milwaukee gave me a physical. I passed the physical. But the contract that they gave me was, we will pay you by the game. Oh, boy. Whatever number of games you play, we will pay you according to that. Wow. So I'm saying, okay, okay. And Where was the union on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at that time, you know, I was still having some difficulties with my leg, and I was just only hoping that with the rest it, it, it would have healed. But I don't know how many games I played that year. You played 11. 11 games that year. And then I think the the 11th game, I'm playing defense in Milwaukee, and somebody drives past me, and Don Nelson's hollers at me. And I could see the guys on the bench put their hands, their faces down in their hands. Oh, jeez. Oh, gracious. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go. Time and to go. 
I looked at Nelly and he looked at me. And the next morning when I went to practice, I went there to tell Nella that I don't think that my leg is healed properly and that I needed to have it looked at. And he said, well, we're going to give you some time to have it looked at because we're going to put you on waivers. Cold, <laughs> cold, Nelly. Yeah, yeah, but... You know, I wasn't resentful or anything because I knew that my career was over right, and I, okay. that I could no longer play at the standard that, that I had played at. And so it was a mutual parting. So that's what happened the last year in Milwaukee. Okay. So now we're gonna we're gonna finish up with, with Larry Costello and, and uh you know you mentioned you mentioned before that uh, he 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 expected everybody to play, you know, hurt. Well, he expected you. You explain it how he expected you to play. Hurt versus what? Sore. Sore. Thank you. Sore. What was, what was his philosophy on that? Philosophy is he would ask you, uh, is it sore? Or is it painful? <laughs> and if you say it's sore, that was not an excuse <laughs> to miss a game. Right. If it, I made the mistake one time of saying, "Well, on a scope on a scale of one to five soreness," and if you picked anything on that soreness scale, you had to play. So eventually I learned that not to use the soreness scale, go by the pain scale. And if a three on the painful scale, then you wouldn't have to play. And, and like I said early, you know, during that time they gave you cortisone injections. And most of the time it deteriorated lig ligaments and other you know, muscles and stuff. So pretty much learned early that, uh, you know, you, you, you had to protect your own career. And I found that, you know, I played sometimes in pain, you know, but then other times when it was really painful, I didn't play. And that was held against me at some points in my career, because I remember when I first went to Washington, I, I, I twisted my ankle in, in training camp about the third day and uh, Wes walked past me and said, mm, I see you hurt already, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first ones to turn on you, your teammates. Yeah, they, they were the first ones to turn on me. <laughs> and and I stayed out about four days and returned to training camp and began to play. And uh, he never apologized for saying that, but you know, Wes ended up uh, being being probably a great teammate. Right, that's fun. that's funny stuff. Um, I, I want you to explain to people your relationship with with Larry Costello. 
who, uh, you know, you said before, he was like, he was like a drill sergeant. Uh, he had the haircut of a drill sergeant. He acted like a drill sergeant. Um, but there was there was friction between you two. But he he pushed you. He pushed you. I remember his his daughter Leslie told me how much he pushed you. But you you tell you tell me about tell us about. It. You know, Larry's passion for the game um, was to win. And and he as a player played hard, dove on the floor for loose balls. And I learned a lot of the little new nuances of the game from Larry. Um, when to come off of a pick, when to take a shot. I just learned so much from him. But at that time, I need need to say that Larry Costello was the first non-African-American coach that I ever had. So going into Milwaukee, when he hollered at me, it was just a different tone that I was hearing. And that went on about my first two years. I remember we us coming back off of a, a, a road trip uh, my second year, and he gave everybody on the starting five a day off except for me. And I had to go to him after practice and remind him that I don't just guarded um, Havlicek, uh, Walt Frazier, uh, Billy Cunningham, up in Jack Marin and stuff up and down the East Coast. So his thing was, well, you just started playing. You should never be tired. But we had our little scuffle simply about me just wanted to be respected as much as he was respecting Oscar and Kareem because I felt I was putting in the same amount of work. And during that time, I was playing about 39 minutes a game. And uh, Larry was just a tough guy. Uh, he had a passion for the game. He loved the game and he only wanted to win. And it took me a while for he and I to um, sort of smooth our differences. It was just that he was used to probably coaching a bu bunch of young black guys who were, we all were in our early twenties. And so we had a different approach to life. But after basketball was over, Larry and I got an opportunity to, to talk each other. I even would call him coach and he, he really liked being called coach. And that was a part of my growth in terms of developing a comfort zone between he and I. And probably in the last 10 years that he was living, he and I talked at least three or four times a year. Uh, one of the greatest pieces of advice he gave me because he coached up at Ithaca College was, Never coach at a school that doesn't have a good athletic budget. <laughs> and uh, he he was feisty all the way to the end because uh, he was upset with the doctors that they had misdiagnosed his cancer. And he was hot about that, but he was still 
Larry Costello and was good to know that. And he even invited me to come down uh, and stay with him on his houseboat in Florida. Uh, when we had re reunions, he and I would talk often. And, and, and like I said, he, his passion for the game far exceeded what he thought about you personally. He never let personalities interfere with basketball. And I give him credit for that because although he and I may have had, you know, a couple of little disagreements, he always pushed me to be the best. And I just found out recently that his daughters said a part of his frustration with me had been that he believed that I could have been, that I could be one of the best forwards to ever play the game. And that's why he consistently pushed me because he didn't think that I believed how good I was. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ever grateful to Larry because I think he and I turned the corner in terms of our relationships with each other. And I, and, and I just got a lot of respect for him. I remember his four daughters and I'm honored. I'm, I'm, it's me being a presenter for Larry Costello to me is as high of an honor as me being inducted into the Hall of Fame that his family would think enough about our relationship in a positive manner that, I mean, I'm overwhelmed to think that I would be honoring or representing a guy like Larry Costello, who I could say some other coaches may not have seen what he saw in me, especially being a, a fourth rounder coming from Division Two. So I'm just overwhelmed by being able to be a presenter for Larry Costello and you know, I, I think uh, Dick Marta needs to be inducted at some point, especially when I see some of the young deserving coaches uh, being put in. I, I, I'm a big advocate for, for Coach Marta because I was blessed to have had two great coaches in the NBA. Hey, Bob, I'm not even going to try to put anything at the end of that exclamation points that you just you just said. Uh, it, it, it was it's an honor for me to to interview you and hear your thoughts on on Costello and I look forward and everybody else. Rick Barry's gonna love you. He's gonna he's gonna buy you a drink at the Hall of Fame. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 the and the odd thing was Rick Barry and I were just fierce competitors, but Rick and I talk a couple of times a year. Right. Right. You know. Well, Bob, thank, thanks an awful lot for, for doing this. And uh, I, I will see you in Springfield. I, 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 too, am going up there to be part of Costello's induction. Uh, unfortunately, it's, posthum it's, it's posthumously. I hate when that happens. It should have happened 20 years ago. But here we are. So thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. And look, thank the technology team. I know Peter made it hard for y'all today. But again, <laughs> thank y'all. And I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Later. Later. Thank you for listening to Hoop Du Jour with me, Peter Vesey.
presented by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. You can listen to all Hoop Du Jour interviews by searching Legends Studios wherever you get your podcasts. 